Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Turning Tides Pod on Twitter. For more information, or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact us at The Turning Tides Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Warning, this episode of Turning Tides contains depictions of war, violence, suicide, sexual assault, gore, mature themes, slavery, and racism. The 17th century had been disastrous for Puerto Rico's development. Even more disastrous was the 16th century, in which the native Taino population had nearly been wiped out. Across the island, The people hoped that the 18th century would bring new opportunities and wealth to the island and its relatively poor inhabitants. Puerto Rico's population was growing exponentially, with virtually no help from the metropolis of Spain. This natural growth had a lot to do with an exceedingly high birth rate. Additionally, the founding of new settlements turbocharged expansion. People had a lot more free time now that they didn't have to travel for miles just to hear mass or go to the market. Following Añasco's example, several settlements were founded, and they began to flourish. Manati was given its sovereignty from Arecibo. After being petitioned by the townspeople, the military governor of Puerto Rico agreed to recognize Utuado as a township, and in the 1740s, settlements truly began to explode. Pepino and Latuna as well as Caguyas, Bayamon, and Guayanabo, were all recognized. Later in the century, the towns of Rio Pedras, Guayama, and many others were founded. The common people still lived their lives similar to their ancestors, owning a hammock and a few plants they grew to feed themselves and their families. Hato owners still jealously guarded their ranches, but their time was dying. The first of the Hato estates would start to be divided up, This process would prove to be long and painful, but it was also necessary, as land was in short supply for the growing population. In spite of this unbridled growth on the island, the rest of the Spanish Empire was slowly suffocating under its own wealth. Throughout the 1730s, tensions between Spain and Britain were drawing the two European powers into what would become a never-ending series of wars. Spanish privateers were a huge problem for the British, as well as their colonial subjects. Although the Spanish privateers were founded under the pretense of stopping smuggling, they found lucrative success as raiders and pirates. Puerto Rico's strategic position made it a marauder's playground, and the headwind from the Atlantic current gave any privateer a significant advantage against unsuspecting merchant ships. This led directly to the War of Jenkins' Ear. This conflict was named after a British mariner had his ear chopped off by a braggadocious Spanish privateer. This was just another example of the many wars fought for dominance in the Caribbean between Britain and Spain. 
One of the main effects of this stagnant conflict was an increase in seafaring entrepreneurs in Puerto Rico itself. Pedro de la Torre, a resident of San Juan, became rich working as a quote-unquote coast guard in Puerto Rican Spain. The massive British fleet, which patrolled the Caribbean, was rumored to be on the brink of attacking San Juan. But fortunately, this attack never occurred. Puerto Rico was highly coveted, but their main defenses, their spread out population, and tropical diseases made it a difficult island to capture and hold. There were major changes for Puerto Ricans during the 18th century due to the Bourbon reforms which were sweeping across the Spanish state and their colonies. While much of the attempted reform was well-meaning, few decrees made serious changes to island life, and almost all of them were met with fierce opposition. To quote Fernando Pico, The Bourbon state of the 18th century, equipped with councils and committees, and obsessed by the language of reform, barely managed to govern the Puerto Rican state. Unquote. In 1755, the first of these reforms were implemented in an attempt to reshape the island in the king's image. He wanted to do away with smuggling forever. His plan entailed allowing Spanish trade companies to bring Spanish foodstuffs to the long-neglected colony in return for vast amounts of sugar and later coffee. The Royal Barcelona Company was given the exclusive license and quote-unquote free trade was permitted on the island. Shortly after, this same company was found smuggling in Puerto Rico. These reforms did very little for the common person. They still lived deep in the hinterlands, away from towns and authoritarian rule. They openly mingled with one another, regardless of skin color. This was much to the chagrin of the local bishop, who tried with all his might to segregate the island. Those without land would make a deal with the local hacienda owner for the rights to an unproductive plot, or they would simply burn down a patch of virgin forest and begin growing on the plentiful topsoil that was left over. Spain found itself at war with Britain once more in the disastrous Seven Years' War. During this conflict, Cuba would be invaded and occupied, while the Rock of Gibraltar would be lost to Spain forever. Puerto Rico was once again in the sights of the lustful British. In the negotiations following hostilities, they entertained accepting Puerto Rico in exchange for Cuba. In the end, British sugar interests in the West Indies intervened. They were genuinely frightened by the thought of what Puerto Rican sugar could do to their protected and insular industry. Cuba was in turn traded for Florida and rechristened Great Britain's 14th colony in North America. The Seven Years' War had serious ramifications, some of which are still felt today. Great Britain demanded that their 13 colonies pay extra taxes to subsidize the massive colonial war effort. The grumbling colonists acquiesced, but years later, the resentment over unfair taxation would engulf the entire Atlantic seaboard in the War of American Independence. In Spain, the need to reinforce their island colonies was growing more clear than ever. The Irish Spaniard Alejandro O'Reilly was sent to Puerto Rico to write a report on the state of the island's affairs. O'Reilly was a decorated military officer who fought throughout the Spanish Empire. He had won the admiration and trust of the king. His report shed light on the inadequate state of island defenses 
the inefficient agricultural practices, and the need for government intervention in order to prevent smuggling. His report also detailed the massive population increase, from only 6,000 inhabitants in 1700 to over 44,000 inhabitants in 1765. Somehow, these 44,000 people were only generating 10,000 pesos in taxes annually. Something was incredibly askew. O'Reilly realized the true wealth of the island wasn't hoarded by Spain, but it was being smuggled in every form imaginable. Entire fields were cultivated and livestock raised with smuggling in mind. Smuggling was incredibly profitable. Spanish authorities would tax and commission everything from enslaved people to the transport of goods. It wasn't a logical tax system, so the people went around the system, in spite of their supposed absolute rule. Ginger, tobacco, and indigo were all produced not for Spain, but for Puerto Rico's island neighbors and foreign markets. To stimulate legal trade, Spain sanctioned a new trading company to deal exclusively in enslaved peoples in exchange for hides and sugar from Puerto Rico. After the auction, these enslaved peoples would invariably end up working for sugar haciendas. This company was also found smuggling. The Bourbon State's authority was non-existent in the faraway colonies. They demanded that the Bishop of San Juan declare smuggling to be a sin. The bishop refused on the grounds that it would do nothing to stop people from doing it. Bourbon authorities then attempted to fix the thorny issue of land ownership. Since colonization, no one in Puerto Rico technically owned their land. All land legally belonged to the sovereign of Spain, and he allowed people the right to live there and work the land. This led to problems when tenants and subtenants could not meet requirements of payment. For years, authorities attempted to wrestle the titles away from the hatos outside San Juan. Eventually, the Audiencia of Santo Domingue became so fed up with the issue that they declared that anyone who, quote, worked the land, owned the land, unquote. It was another victory for the Puerto Rican people in the face of blockheaded reformers. One of the few initiatives which was actually helpful to the common people of Puerto Rico was the introduction of the coffee bean from Santo Domingue in 1736. The first recorded use of the coffee bean dates back to the late 15th century. It was originally grown in the hills of Ethiopia. The story goes that a native Ethiopian goat herd noticed his goats eating strange berries from a plant. The berries made them so hyper that they refused to relax or rest. Informing the local abbot, the priest also found that the berries, when brewed in a tea, kept him alert and awake. From these humble origins, the use of coffee bean exploded. Members of the Sufi sect of Islam drank the beverage in large amounts in present-day Yemen. This beverage supposedly brought the drinker closer to the divine as it kept Sufi prophets well awake into the night. Coffee drinking soon spread the entire breadth of the Muslim world. Cities like Cairo and Istanbul saw the rise of the first great coffee houses and coffee shops. The Yemeni growers guarded their monopoly on coffee until the mid-17th century, when the floodgates finally opened and spilled out into the European markets.
1651, the first English coffee houses opened, and in no time at all, coffee fever swept the rest of continental Europe. Coffee quickly took root in Dutch Java, and by the 18th century, it was thriving in the Caribbean, as well as the South American highlands. Coffee had the advantage of being addictive, but not incapacitating. In a time when drinking water was difficult, even dangerous, coffee prevailed. It could be drunk at all times and was seen as a highly social drink, something which lubricated the mind and gave way to conversation. Thanks to the effects of the coffee bean, the idea of the coffee house revolutionary became popular, and coffee houses were even called penny universities in Britain as they attracted intellectuals and philosophers from all walks of life. Coffee soon became a favorite crop for poorer Puerto Ricans. Many subsistence farmers grew plantains or platanos in conjunction with coffee because the coffee bush grows much better when given shade. Additionally, the bush grew incredibly well at higher altitudes, making the interior of Puerto Rico a perfect place for extensive coffee plant growth. In no time at all, Coffee was competing with sugar as Puerto Rico's number one export. This competition came to an end with the American War of Independence, as American merchants needed to make up the deficit which arose due to the lack of British sugar and molasses from Jamaica. Once again, sugar was on top. With this surge, more and more enslaved peoples were forced into labor in order to keep the sugar mills profitable. With the population expanding greatly across the Americas, the need for new goods in foreign markets exploded. For the first time in world history, faraway markets such as those of Eastern Europe and Rio de la Plata were on the world stage. Their goods helped ramp up competition in a trade system that was similar to that of modern times. At first, Great Britain found itself dealing with a meager rebellion in the 13 colonies. Due to the incredibly competent leadership of men like George Washington and the Adams Brothers, the United States found success on the battlefield and in the realm of world opinion. After the climactic Battle of Saratoga, the French and later the Dutch and the Spanish joined in on the side of the upstart colonies. By 1783, the immensely unpopular war was starting to affect the fabric of British life so Parliament made the decision to sue for peace. They were terrified that a country which espoused the ideas of freedom and liberty would exist. This radical change would end up nearly destroying America's one-time allies, as the same ideas that lit the fire of the American Revolution would spread to France and Haiti. They would also culminate in the Spanish-American Wars of Independence. The world was about to be turned upside down. Spain's constant wars and foreign affair mishaps had serious effects on the life of Puerto Rico's economy. For whole decades, the situados failed to arrive. Merchants, soldiers, and priests had to be paid with IOUs. There was no hard money on the island. The few with money gave it to merchants for necessary food goods. Most of the time, hides or sugar were traded for food or enslaved peoples. It was a barter system which was enforced by the island's governors. Family was one of the few safety nets for Puerto Ricans during this time. The role of godfather became very prevalent. Whoever was made godfather or godmother was usually a member of the community who was well off and took pride in their role as a surrogate caretaker. 
it was a crucial position which kept countless Puerto Ricans out of poverty. The society was highly patriarchal, with the grandfather or father being in control of large families and their many familial dealings. Women were expected to remain at home and away from the public eye, especially if they were married. To give an example of the level of sexism experienced by women during this time, the following is an excerpt from Puerto Rico, a panorama of its peoples by Fernando Pico. Quote, In 1787, Bishop Tres Palacios complained that women were not simply named Maria, and he forbade names with suffixes like Montessoret, Pilar, Alta Gracia, or Carmen, unquote. Thanks to the new taxes recommended by O'Reilly's report, as well as the island's ramped-up defensive measures, the situado was expanded, and the wages of the garrison soldiers were increased. This called for a new and innovative land tax. Original colonizers were given dozens of acres. As a result, many miles of land went unworked by their owners. This tax was levied with the hope that the large tracts of uncultivated land would either be worked or be sold to new owners. With much of the island's budget diverted to military upkeep, there was very little done to fix the common citizens' issues. It was easier to travel from San Juan to the Danish-controlled island of St. Thomas than it was to travel anywhere inland in Puerto Rico. There were virtually no roads, and the roads which did exist were goat paths, which had been worn into the terrain throughout time. During the rainy seasons, these roads became dangerous, muddy quagmires, which were nearly impossible to traverse. Whole towns were cut off from the rest of the island for weeks at a time. The one thing that seemed to always be in supply was money for parties and festivals. These festivals were held throughout the year with great pomp and celebration. Fireworks, cockfights, and dances were held at great expense to the island's budget. These festivities included, quote, the Feasts of Our Lady, the Apostles, the Great Saints of Antiquity, St. Rose, St. Anthony, St. Francis, St. Blaise, St. Michael the Archangel, unquote. Fernando Pico goes on to say, quote, There were days for bearing candles, for racing horses or lighting bonfires. There were days on which no stove was lit nor nails hammered. There were nights for singing the rosary or attending midnight mass. Unquote. But not everything on the island was a celebration. An incredibly racist society and governmental system existed beneath the surface. Any important decision was made based on your blood and who your parents were. If you could prove your parents were both Spaniards, you would find yourself being given beneficial incentives in trade and legal affairs. Spaniards were actually a minority of the Puerto Rican population, while multi-ethnic black and enslaved peoples outnumbered the quote-unquote pure whites who lived on the island. In 1776, there were 30,000 whites compared to 29,000 quote morenos libres, unquote, 4,700 quote pardos, unquote, and almost 8,000 quote, slaves, unquote. The active campaign against multi-ethnic and black individuals would only become more outwardly violent. This is especially true in Puerto Rico, 
As early as 1783, laws and edicts were passed stating, quote, that the blacks and people of color may not carry with them under any pretext cudgels, sticks, or clubs on account of the bad use they have made with them, unquote. The edict goes on to state, quote, that none dare advise, protect, or hide in any form whatsoever the flight or concealment of slaves, convicts, fugitives, delinquents, runaway children, or married women who leave their husbands, unquote. The racist nature of legal Puerto Rico did not reach the countryside. There, white, black, and native people coexisted freely, usually out of wedlock and against the wishes of the religious powers on the island. To quote Fernando Pico, Puerto Ricans learned that racial segregation was against Jesus' gospel, not from the learned admonitions of the prelates who were appointed by the king, but from the daily practice of solidarity. Unquote. In the years before the revolutions in America and France, Puerto Rico was still seen as a haven for enslaved people looking to live freely. A group of over 300 enslaved peoples who were bound for St. Thomas was granted refuge by the Puerto Rican authorities. However, this policy would soon change with the coming rebellions. In France, years of poor harvest, absurd taxes, and aggressive foreign policy had left the country completely in debt. To counter this, King Louis XVI called his estates general to formally increase taxes. The leaders of the third estate soon attempted to take control of the entire assembly, causing the king to force the assembly's dissolution. In response, members of the third estate passed the tennis court oath, which bound its members to stand together until a constitution was established. By July 1789, the new National Assembly was drafting the Constitution, while hungry Parisians stormed the Bastille. During that same year, Marquis de Lafayette drafted the original copy of the Declaration of the Rights of Man. In the document's first article, it states, quote, Men are born and remain free and equal in rights, unquote. It was an explosive idea. How could France continue to justify the hundreds of thousands of enslaved Africans they had forced into bondage in their colonies? A hyper-revolution swept France, and it soon spread to the French colonies. The Haitian War of Independence began in August of 1791 with a massive rebellion in the northern end of the island. Enslaved peoples burned coffee and sugar plantations to the ground and placed the heads of French children on spikes to be paraded through town. By 1792, Britain and Spain were at war with revolutionary France, and they sent whole armies into Haiti to fight on the side of the Haitian peoples. However, wherever the British army went, they reinstituted slavery, making them reviled by the population who would soon be enslaved by them once more. In their immense desperation, the revolutionary French government emancipated their enslaved peoples. Many multi-ethnic and free black Haitians now joined the French side and fought with distinction against the British. The main killer of the British proved to be yellow fever, which decimated their 50,000-man army. Following the British retreat, the leader of Haiti, Toussaint Louverture, sent agents across the Caribbean to stir other enslaved peoples to arms. 
One such agent was accused of plotting an uprising in 1795 in Aguadilla. It would prove to be the first of many conspiracies in Puerto Rico in which enslaved peoples of the island would attempt to defend themselves and kill their enslavers. The horror show that was happening just across the Mona Channel had to be deeply unsettling to the conservative military men who ran Puerto Rico. However, with this destruction, many hacendados saw their chance, and sugar production exploded. Besides Brazil, French Santo Domingue had been one of the top producers of sugar, usually harvesting over 80,000 tons. Prices now rose dramatically across the globe, making its farming that much more profitable for Puerto Ricans. As discussed previously, enslavement and sugar production went hand in hand. Hacendados exploited the labor of enslaved peoples for over nine hours a day, and if it was harvest season, this number went up to 14 hours a day or more. Enslaved peoples were fed the crushed cane that they harvested and were often forced to work holidays and the Sabbath. The lack of technological advancement in agriculture in Puerto Rico up to that point had been the reason enslaved peoples made up only 11% of the population. They suffered an incredible amount of deprivation in order to provide sugar for their enslavers to sell at an immense profit. There are those who claim that slavery led to technological stagnation or that enslaved laborers were unproductive. Clearly, they have not looked into the history of the places where slavery was most prevalent. The economic progress of Europe during this period was a direct result of enslaved people's labor throughout the southern United States and across Spanish South America. In Puerto Rico, one of the few peoples who advanced societally were the Creoles. These were Puerto Ricans who could trace their descent back to Europe. They found success as merchants, privateers, and increasingly in the clergy. Usually, religious orders were reserved exclusively for Europeans from the Spanish mainland. After several epidemics killed many of the island's European priests, the religious authorities finally let Creole people join the priesthood. To the bishop's disgust, Creole priests were soon found fraternizing with their flock and <gasps> going to community dances. This quickly became commonplace throughout the priesthood and it helped bring priests closer to the people that they were spiritually advising. The Creole priests soon became a symbol of Puerto Rican justice and mercy. Some of the first histories of the island were written in this period. Unfortunately, they were largely written by foreigners given their own impressions of the island. In each work, however, a common thread is sewn. This island, they claimed, was in a period of incredible transition. It was no longer the backward money pit which Habsburg Spanish rule had considered it to be. It was diversifying. Something like self-sufficiency was within reach. One of Puerto Rico's first well-known artists thrived during this period of upheaval. Jose Campeche was a multi-ethnic painter who became famous in San Juan for his portrayal of religious scenes and contemporary aristocrats. By 1796, following years of war with France, the Spanish Empire signed a peace treaty which made them allies with the revolutionaries. The once mighty 13% of the world-owning Spanish Empire showed itself to be little more 
than a French satellite. After this betrayal of British interests, an invasion was planned, which aimed to quickly break up Spain's colonial empire. 68 ships carrying over 6,000 British soldiers sailed for the Caribbean. This was a joint operation led by Ralph Abercrombie of the Royal Army and Henry Harvey of the Royal Navy. They first arrived in Trinidad, where they captured the island without a fight. Then they turned north toward Puerto Rico. For the first time in nearly 200 years, the British would attempt to take the key to the Indies. Those ships which were not disembarking men were sent to blockade the rest of the island. And by April 18, 1797, the 6,000 British troops landed in Cangrejos and attempted to take San Juan from behind. But this was not the same meager island which Britain had captured 199 years ago. It was a walled city, studded with defensive works at every turn. The British attack was held up at the Soldiers' Bridge. The entire population of the island was rising to meet the invaders. The attack on San Juan was quickly becoming the siege of Cangrejos. The British were being squeezed by hordes of local militias, trapped between a rock and a hard place, and having suffered over 200 casualties, the British practiced a modicum of prudence and retreated, never again to harass Puerto Rican shores. The general feeling amongst the locals after the British repulse outside San Juan was a great sense of pride. This was a massive, spontaneous uprising against a foreign invader. It was the Puerto Rican who sent the British scurrying back to their boats. Once again, Puerto Ricans took charge of their own destinies and showed themselves to be more than capable of holding off the British menace. In Italy, a Corsican citizen named Napoleon Bonaparte was swamping his enemies on the battlefield and later in the political backrooms of France. By 1800, his coup had granted him the title of dictator. By 1802, he had sent massive reinforcements to his Caribbean colonies. Following the Haitian occupation of Spanish Santo Domingue, Leclerc's expedition of over 20,000 hardened French soldiers landed in Haiti to remove Louverture and resubjugate the black Haitian population. They succeeded in controlling most of the locals, using lies and cajoling to manipulate the population. The few Haitians who were still fighting the French took to the mountains where they were, quote, deprived of water and food. The black troops had to chew on balls of lead in the hope of quenching their unbearable thirst. They suffered without complaint, out of hope for vengeance. Unquote. Following Toussaint's capture and his death in the French dungeons, the rebellion recommenced. Truly barbarous fighting characterized Haiti throughout 1803. So horrifying was the brutality that the French were infamously credited with the use of one of the first gas chambers. They would burn volcanic sulfur to suffocate whole ship bellies of black prisoners. Leclerc wrote to Napoleon that he wanted to, quote, destroy all the blacks in the mountains, men and women, sparing only children younger than 12, unquote. Leclerc would be dead by 1804 taken by yellow fever. The horrifying acts of revenge in which the French took part in caused many loyal black French troops to switch sides. 50,000 French soldiers and civilians would be dead. 
200,000 black Haitians would be brutally killed as well. But they would eventually gain their independence. With Napoleon's rise as emperor, the French would find themselves at war with the better part of the world. In 1804, the combined French and Spanish fleets were destroyed during the Battle of Trafalgar. This ended all effective communication between the Spanish mainland and their colonies in the Western Hemisphere. Lacking a merchant marine and the ability to trade with the colonies, Spanish authorities finally allowed Puerto Rican goods to be carried in foreign vessels. These vessels were almost exclusively American. This increased the already substantial trade relationship which existed between American merchants and the Puerto Rican market. Puerto Rico's central location and ability to grow resources piqued the interest of many American lawmakers. In 1808, events in Spain were becoming hectic. Charles IV took the unprecedented step of abdicating the throne in the middle of war with Britain. Fearing his son's proclivities toward Great Britain, Napoleon stepped into the secession crisis. He forced Ferdinand to abdicate as well in favor of his own brother, Joseph Bonaparte. Napoleon never counted on the Spanish people's reaction to this unprecedented decision. A massive rebellion was furiously put down in Madrid, and similar insurrections spread like wildfire in the conservative Spanish countryside. A medieval Spanish decree stated that when the king was away or not present, the subjects could rule themselves. Juntas, or councils, sprang up to administer these fledgling rebellions. The battle lines were now drawn. There was French Spain, which controlled the northern half of the country and were bolstered by the French army. And there was Royalist Spain, which fought for the restoration of the Spanish monarch Ferdinand and had the support of the British, both militarily and economically. In an attempt to force the Spanish colonies into loyalty, Spanish delegates from France's satellite kingdom were sent to South America and the Caribbean islands. In Puerto Rico, the delegate was thrown in prison on the governor's orders. An angry mob wanted to stone the Spaniard to death. Puerto Rico was firmly on the side of the deposed Spanish king, Ferdinand. In 1809, the junta called for Puerto Rican delegates to meet in Spain. This would mark the first election on the island. The Cabildo of San Germán drafted a statement for the junta, which stated that they supported the Spanish King Ferdinand, quote, but if by divine disposition the Spanish peninsula were lost, let this island remain independent and in free determination to elect the best means for the conservation and subsistence of its inhabitants, unquote. The first man chosen to represent the island in the Spanish courts was Ramon Power y Geralt, an Irish Puerto Rican who wanted liberal reform and lower taxes. He would ask Spain for concessions to make Puerto Rico more sustainable, including lifting certain customs duties, as well as exonerating growing haciendas from the sales tax. The ruling junta called the courts to order. In an attempt to show their willingness to compromise with the colonies, they elected Ramon Power as vice president of the courts. He would struggle for nearly three years trying to convince his comrades to pass a constitution, as well as the reforms he presented. As the courts met in Cadiz, events were snowballing on the American mainland. In Mexico, a priest named Miguel Hidalgo led a rebellion, which quickly began marching on Mexico City. This uprising permanently halted the situado. 
A similar rebellion started in Venezuela, led by Francisco de Miranda. After defending themselves against the British attack, Buenos Aires rose as well. In no time at all, nearly all of South America and Mexico were alight with insurrectionary movements. Many of them were successful early on. However, the various rebellions became disorganized as they lacked a clear unifying message. By 1814, nearly all of the various uprisings would be extinguished, and the few cells of resistance would be driven further and further into the South American hinterland. These events had serious ramifications for Puerto Rico. Under the leadership of Governor Salvador Melendez, all things liberal on the island were crushed. Melendez went so far as to purge the San Juan Cabildo and had several well-known townspeople arrested. Additionally, he sent over 2,000 Puerto Ricans to fight against their brothers on the South American mainland. This military expedition sapped the coffers of the small island even more. The Creole elite, the most liberal of the upper classes in Puerto Rico, was a small group already. Spain would go on to gaslight them into believing that their want for an independent or self-governed Puerto Rico was radical. The last thing these elites wanted to be was associated with a radical movement. These manipulative tactics allowed Spain to control and brainwash the Puerto Rican elite, delaying the island people's rebellion for many years. Back in the courts of Spain, Ramon Power had been working feverishly to pass reforms. In 1811, the Lay Power Act was officially passed and ratified. The junta had recently been abolished as well, replaced by the Regency Council, a seemingly more efficient way to run a state which was under foreign occupation. Previously, the military governor controlled all aspects of Puerto Rican life, often to the detriment of the island's economy. They passed laws, they sought out funds, and defended their island in case of attack. The Lay Power Act opened several ports to Puerto Rican trade and stipulated that for the first time in the island's history, the roles of military governor and economic intendant or treasurer would be held by two separate men. Alejandro Ramirez y Blanco was chosen as the new intendant of Puerto Rico. He was previously the intendant for Honduras. He would now be tasked with fixing Puerto Rico's failing economy. It took several years for Ramirez to find his way to the island. In the interim, he stayed in Cuba and saw the process of producing sugar in the mills firsthand. His arrival brought sweeping changes across the island. He introduced paper money in the hopes that it would bring the island economic independence from the situado. Unfortunately, trust in the money was non-existent. Many merchants refused to be paid with it, and the bills were easily counterfeited. As a result, inflation rose. It cost 300 paper pesos to acquire a single silver peso. Ramirez refused to be deterred. He found a solution to the problem he started. As thousands of loyalists from the South American mainland, mainly Venezuela, streamed into Puerto Rico's ports, they brought pieces of silver with them. Ramirez saw their money, or macuquino, as a life vest. He asked that refugees fleeing Venezuela bring their silver, and upon arrival, a portion of it would be taken by the government. The government then distributed the silver to their citizens, and the useless paper bills were then burnt. Although it was only meant to serve as a temporary solution, the macuquino 
remained in Puerto Rican circulation until the 1850s. In addition to these battles with the island's currency, Ramirez removed several impediments to growth. He abolished complicated indirect taxes, preferring to tax the land which was owned or the income acquired. This vastly improved the island's economic health and encouraged immigration. Throughout this revolutionary period, the population of Puerto Rico was exploding. Due to natural factors and foreign immigration, the 44,000 inhabitants listed in O'Reilly's 1765 census were now 155,000 inhabitants in the year 1800. The genocidal war in Haiti contributed to a rising number of French citizens moving to Puerto Rico, where their connections and sugar-growing prowess allowed them to become a staple of the island's economy fairly quickly. As was mentioned, thousands of loyalist South Americans arrived in Puerto Rico during this time. Due to cultural similarities, many assimilated into Puerto Rican society very easily. When the Irish arrived, they were first treated with suspicion. But they eventually became an integral part of the island's culture and economy. Surnames like Power, O'Reilly, or O'Daly are prevalent throughout Puerto Rican history, exemplifying the effects Irish immigration played on the island well into today. Many thousands of convicts from across Spain and its colonies arrived as well. They were forced into brutal labor on the walls of San Juan or in the unsanitary water systems. Many thousands died and many more were left handicapped as a result of the unsafe working conditions. Those who survived could move to the interior of the island. How many people did this is still unclear and requires more research. The most important segment of the population, which created the wealth of the Puerto Rican elite, were the tens of thousands of Africans who arrived against their will. The number of enslaved peoples who were brought to the island doubled from 7,000 in 1776 to over 18,000 in the 1800s. This number would balloon to over 40,000 in the 1830s, hitting its zenith in the 1840s, when Puerto Rico had over 50,000 enslaved peoples trapped in bondage. The age range of the enslaved peoples taken from Africa to Puerto Rico during this time averaged out at 14 years old for boys and only 12 years old for girls. Their journey was treacherous. Many enslavers would pack their ships to bursting with human beings. Those with smallpox were thrown overboard. Once on the island, many enslaved people suffered intense forms of what can only be described now as PTSD. Many killed themselves. Some believed that when they died, their spirits would be able to return home to Africa. 12.5 to 15 million people were enslaved, and their descendants continued to be abused and neglected by government officials and public servants to this day. While no form of reparation or restitution has been issued nor supported by the people who profited from this horrific excuse for an industry. In fact, following their emancipation, many enslaved peoples were forced to work for their masters and pay them back for the honor of being emancipated. On March 19, 1812, the first Spanish constitution was signed into law. 
It promoted personal liberty and the inviability of property. In Puerto Rico, it ushered in a time of mass celebration and liberalization. For the first time, town councils and local delegates were placed in charge of the settlements. Previously, the Teniente Aguera had complete control, and the councils were merely glorified advisors. With these well-meaning reforms enshrined into law, the other side of the coin was revealed to the Creole population of Puerto Rico. The American colonies were not equally represented in the Spanish courts. Additionally, Spanish citizenship was jealously guarded. One had to prove beyond doubt that both of one's parents were Spaniards. Anyone who could not prove this was only considered a subject of Spain, not a citizen. A person could gain their citizenship through services to the state, or they were required to pay vast sums of money for the honor. Many Puerto Rican Creoles cared little for Spanish citizenship. Instead, they wanted to peacefully live their lives and increase the size of their wallets. By 1813, Ramon Power would be dead, a victim of the yellow fever epidemic which had swept Spain. José María Quiñones was elected to replace him. He was a liberal lawyer from San Germán. However, by the time he arrived in Cadiz, the Constitution of March 1812 was abolished, and Ferdinand was proclaimed absolute monarch. Upon hearing the news, Quiñones set about pleading with the king to keep some of the meager reforms which had been passed by power. Back on the island, elections were halted, local councils were uprooted, and absolute rule was reinstated. All of this left a bitter taste in the mouths of the many liberals who had fought to return King Ferdinand to power. They lost loved ones and family in the hope that their sacrifices could bring about a better future. All they got was more of the same. They traded the tyrant from Paris for the tyrant from Madrid. As Napoleon lay defeated, the war to defeat Spain garnered more support throughout the Americas. These rebellions were energized even further by the frenetic, unyielding Simon Bolivar. Following the return to absolutism, there was a crackdown on liberal thinkers, in which many were jailed. King Ferdinand attempted to ingratiate himself with the island which had so graciously fought and defended him. In 1815, he began implementing the Cedula de Gracias, this was an economic reform package which was meant to stimulate foreign immigration, promote sugar haciendas, and provide incentives and tax breaks to merchants and shipping companies. The task of implementing the reforms fell on the shoulders of Alejandro Ramirez, who was allowed to stay on as the island's intendant. Immigrants who converted to Catholicism now had economic incentive to move to Puerto Rico. Touching on how these reforms were implemented, the following excerpt is taken from Puerto Rico, an interpretive history, pre-Columbian times to 1900, by Olga Jimenez de Wagenheim. Quote, Once on the island, white heads of household were given six acres of land for each member of their families, and another three acres for each slave they owned. Free blacks and mixed heads of family, by contrast, received half this amount. With regard to tax holidays... White families received 10-year exemptions from various taxes, while non-whites were exempted for only five years. Unquote. Additionally, the island could now trade legally with several foreign nations. These trade deals usually involved an increased markup or tax, but it was much closer to the free trade which Power and Quiñones had envisioned. The Cedula de Gracias marked a major milestone for Puerto Rico. 
The level to which the economic reform package helped Puerto Rican citizens, on the whole, is debatable. It is true that following its implementation, the Puerto Rican population nearly doubled. By 1834, there were 358,000 people on the island. However, the lifting of trade barriers merely emboldened smugglers with legal precedent. The willingness for the king to compromise on the issue of smuggling exemplified the fact that the will of the lone smuggler could be greater than that of the king. When rebellion and insurrection began bubbling up in South America, vultures from the United States saw it as an opportunity to, you guessed it, make money. They quickly ventured to Buenos Aires, or Caracas, and were sent out as privateers upon arrival. The crews, composed mainly of Americans, ravaged Puerto Rican shipping. The Puerto Rican governors responded by backing their own privateers as a means to defend themselves. The rebellion was so widespread in the Spanish Americas that more reinforcements were needed. As they sat in Cadiz, preparing to depart, something extraordinary happened. Their liberal officers stirred them into rebellion, rallying them to demand a return to the Constitution of 1812. The king, feeling the walls closing in, realized he had no choice. He gave in to the rebels' demands, and the Constitution was passed into law once more. By 1822, the Puerto Rican delegate to the courts, Demetrio Odali, had his act enshrined in law, and Puerto Rico officially had a government which had separate civil and military divisions. One of the government's first actions was to brutally put down an uprising in which two enslaved peoples were shot, two were sent to hard labor prisons, and a dozen others were punished by their enslavers. As Odali's term as delegate expired, Jose Maria Quinones was reinstated. Unfortunately for Quinones, when he arrived in Spain, he learned an awful piece of news. The French army, under the orders of conservative king Charles X, had marched into Madrid and reinstated absolute rule. Military governor Miguel de la Torre could not have been happier that this had taken place. Latour was a die-hard conservative who had recently been removed as the military governor of Venezuela after Simon Bolivar trounced him at Carabobo. He quickly went about consolidating his grip over the island and its inhabitants. Latour would become the longest-serving military governor in Puerto Rican history. His rule was one of authoritarianism, oppression, and bullish racism. The island was kept in a state of siege, as Latour feared that Bolivar's army would land in Puerto Rico at any moment. He had some reason to fear. Bolivar's right-hand man was a Puerto Rican named Antonio Valado. Puerto Rico would only suffer two small raids conducted by South American forces. The events of September 1822 should have given Latour some insight that his real problem would not come from the South, but from the North. Puerto Rican sugar and molasses had become staple products on many American shelves. And with the incentives granted by the Cedula, the relationship between powerful American interests and Puerto Rican producers only increased. A former fighter alongside a Bolivar, Ducodre Holstein, was a soldier of fortune from Alsace. He intended on landing in Puerto Rico with 500 soldiers. Once on the island's west coast, he would declare the Republic of Boricua. 
To help him on his quest, he sent agents to the island to rouse the large population of enslaved peoples. These agents fed the people the false idea that once declared a republic, Holstein would abolish chattel enslavement. The conspiracy was reported and put down, with several of the main conspirators being shot. Holstein was held up in Caracal, where the local Dutch government had arrested him and his men. This demonstrated how subversive thinking was becoming more prominent throughout the island. The expedition had been funded by Puerto Ricans and likely by U.S. citizens, who felt manifest destiny pointed not only west, but south, toward the Caribbean as well. At this time, the United States was showing serious, let's say, interest in their neighbors' resources. In 1823, President Monroe had introduced the doctrine which called for all European colonizers to halt expansion immediately. America was demonstrating early on that it had no problem becoming involved in its neighbor's foreign affairs. As war raged in South America, and South American privateers increased their attacks on neutral shipping, the U.S. created a Caribbean armada to better protect itself. Additionally, their diplomats demanded an end to all privateering in the Caribbean by both Spanish and rebel vessels. Due to the intervention of the United States, many privateers ceased their operations outright or were forced to continue as full-blown pirates. One of these Puerto Rican pirates would be dubbed the last pirate of the Indies, Roberto Confresi. Confresi was born in 1791. His ancestry may have been Jewish by Czech extraction. Following the death of the pirate Jean Lafitte, there was virtually no major players along the Spanish-American coast. Confresi found a niche right away as he proved to be bloodthirsty, bold, and daring. His success was stunning, and it was quite shocking to the powers that be, especially during a time when the threat of piracy was thought to have been curtailed. Confresi was incredibly brutal toward any mariner he found, unless they were Puerto Rican. A famous story goes that after capturing a schooner with a native of the island on board, he returned to Mayaguez and left the boy there unharmed. His favorite spot from which to ambush was the small uninhabited island of Mona, named after the same causeway of water which separated Hispaniola from Puerto Rico. From this position, unsuspecting American and British ships fell easily to the last pirate. It became so bad that an American naval patrol, believing Confresi to be in the area, effected a landing in Arecibo, causing a small international incident between Spain and the United States. For the next two years, the authorities searched, and Confresi eluded them only to reappear right under their noses, capturing a European trading vessel. His pirating career began how it ended, with extreme violence. A Spanish task force was formed to apprehend him. They caught up with his flagship, Anne. Realizing he would not be able to outrun the Spanish vessel which ambushed his ship, Confresi ordered the Anne to be sunk off the coast of Guayama, and he took off inland. Confresi would finally be captured by three members of the local militia. He claimed to have 4,000 pieces of Spanish gold, which he attempted to use to bribe the officials. To this day, the gold has never been found, nor recovered.
Confresi's bribe was refused, and he was placed in front of a military court for punishment. The trial was a mere formality. Everybody knew the pirate would be sentenced to death. A firing squad was formed as Confresi's crimes were read to him. He asked for no eye covering. His last words were supposedly, quote, I have killed hundreds with my own hands, and I know how to die. Fire! Unquote. He was 33. Today, Confresi's legacy is akin to a folk symbol of Puerto Rican spirit, with statues of him adorning the island. With Confresi's death and the ending of the Spanish Wars of Independence, life changed significantly for Spain, its holdings, and the world at large. Bolivar failed to have the various new states and countries recognized as a federal body. His dream was to unify South America, akin to the United States. His failings had to do with several different factors. The separate new states all presented their own specific challenges. And with the war's cessation, a massive economic recession swept the fragile countries. The various leaders of these fledgling countries preferred to go it alone, and attempt to fix the problems on their own doorsteps first. This left Bolivar embittered, and he died an unhappy man in 1830, after years of fighting for his beliefs. Back in Puerto Rico, Latour's governorship was harsh and imposing. He occasionally made attempts to improve island life. However, his rule was marred by the incredibly racist laws he enacted against enslaved peoples and free black people. For example, some of the ways he attempted to improve island life, he appointed doctors to aid the population of San Juan during a particularly nasty outbreak of food poisoning. Additionally, he opened up several primary schools using local funds, and he had the San Juan Theater opened. He was jokingly referred to as the governor of the three Bs, baile, which is dance, botella, which is drinking, and berajas, which is gambling. Throughout this period, sugar was growing more and more. Its main production centers were Huayama in the southeast, Mayaquez in the northwest, and Ponce in the southwest. Immigrants were the main movers of the island's wealth. 80% of all sugar growth done in Ponce, for example, was controlled by foreign planters. Most merchants were also foreign. They used their connections from Danish St. Thomas to ingratiate themselves with the international market. The foreigners who grew sugar were either Frenchmen or Venezuelans, who were now back on their feet after losing everything in the recent upheavals in their homelands. The foreigners who traded with these sugar planters were increasingly from Corsica and the United States. Gone were the days of the Hatos. Only 18% of the islands used land could be considered ranch space, while over 80% was used for growing sugarcane, coffee, and other cash crops. Following the Haitian Revolution, enslavers across Europe and beyond became terrified that they would meet the same fate as their counterparts in French Haiti. Following the Napoleonic Wars, Britain took the lead in the campaign against enslavement. They would become one of the first countries to outlaw enslavement outright. They were putting increasing pressure on every country to put an end to it. In 1817, they succeeded in getting Spain to agree to end the trade. However, Puerto Rican government officials had vested interest in keeping the plantation-based economy afloat. Latour went around this new law and gave special licensing to companies dealing in enslaved peoples. As most of the world did away with the slave trade, Puerto Rico doubled down. 
1826, a revolt was brewing in Puerto Rico. A group of enslaved peoples planned to set fire to the sugarcane fields right before the harvest. They would then attempt to take the local barracks, which contained weaponry. Their plan was reported by an enslaved person the day before the rebellion was set to begin. The informer was given five pesos and granted their freedom. While 30 enslaved peoples were arrested for their role in the uprising, 20 were executed. Several more were sentenced to hard labor in the dockyards, and the rest were sentenced to life in prison. In response to this, Miguel de la Torre passed the 1826 Reglamento de Esclavos. These were the new guidelines which all enslaved peoples were required to follow. The orders dictated how enslaved peoples should behave, what they should do, and who they can and can't sleep with. The reglamento also detailed how enslavers should treat their enslaved peoples, but it provided no punishment for enslavers who failed to comply. In 1833, King Ferdinand died. Following his passing, there was much debate over who would be his successor. In the north of Spain, conservatives supported Ferdinand's brother, Carlos. In the south, the liberals supported the queen regent, Isabella. The liberals passed the Constitution of 1836, and the conservatives rebelled in response. This started the Carlist Wars, which would rage on and off for more than 30 years, ultimately resulting in a conservative victory. In the meantime, the new liberal government attempted to placate the island of Puerto Rico. They informed the island's leaders that special laws were being considered for Puerto Rico and Cuba. Finally, after hundreds of years of mismanagement, Puerto Rico would have laws which would attempt to deal with their specific problems, rather than the problems the metropolis deemed they had. Sadly, these special laws were delayed until the late 1860s. The Puerto Rican delegates were not accepted at the courts, and the Spanish Constitution did not confer its rights to Puerto Ricans. Upon realizing these laws were not going to be presented anytime soon, the few separatists on the island conspired to overthrow Spanish rule. Members of the Granada Regiment were planning the coup, and by 1838, they believed they had enough support to go ahead with the attempt. Unfortunately, the ringleaders were denounced by a member of the conspiracy. Several escaped Awful Island. One with the surname of Quinones was arrested and found strangled in his cell the next day. As a result of these subversive elements, the Granada Regiment was disbanded and more initiatives introduced to attempt to placate the population. The government continued its crackdown throughout the following years. A passport was now needed to travel from one town to another in Puerto Rico. Laborers who did not own land were registered and had to provide proof of gainful employment. The unemployed were considered vagrants, and many were forced to find land from a kind hacendado or move to the towns. Madrid would eventually abolish this law. Even the Spaniards considered it a breach of personal rights. Very few people had traveled the extent of the island. Additionally, communication between towns and building of roads were virtually non-existent. For example, if one were to walk from Utuado to Arecibo, they would have to wade through the same river 23 separate times along the journey. Needless to say, this made traversing the island next to impossible. 
Throughout the 1830s and 1840s, Puerto Rico would attempt to defy the international laws banning the trade of enslaved peoples from Africa. This led to the capture of the town of Toa Baja by enslaved Africans. They rallied around their native tribe and took the barracks during the night. Then they attempted to capture the local church, where they planned to call the thousands in bondage to arms. They were held up by the local priest and a vigilante until the militia arrived and quelled the uprising. Several more conspiracies and uprisings would be attempted all over the island, but the uprising in Toa Baja was by far the most successful. The most productive sugar plantations were the main focus of these many rebellions. The uprisings were planned with the harvest season. In 1845, Puerto Rico finally upheld the ban on the slave trade. Almost immediately, hacendados complained that they would not have enough of a workforce to harvest their precious sugarcane. They demanded action from the governor, Juan González de Puzela. He reacted by passing the law of the Libreta. This was essentially the same system which had been decried by Spain as being a violation of individual human rights. This made it compulsory for any worker who did not own land nor rent to carry a passbook with them. This passbook kept your work records and needed to be filled in every week by your employer. Your employer could also add comments about the worker and point out infractions which could seriously affect the laborer. Those found without libretas, or with their libretas unfilled, were forced into relocation. They were sent to the developing towns. This turned the landless worker into a new source of labor for the hacendados. These workers made up about 10% of the population. They were meant to replace the dwindling population of enslaved peoples. Many hacendados would even confiscate workers' passbooks or withhold pay in the hopes of keeping the workers on until the end of the season. Free workers constantly refused to work during harvest time, and almost no one would willingly work in the boiling houses of the sugar mills. As 1848 began, enslaved peoples began rising up across the Caribbean, deeply frightening Juan Prim, the military governor. He passed the infamous Black Codes in response. These were vehemently racist laws. They targeted black people and enslaved people specifically. Article 2 of the code states, quote, Any person of the African race who takes up a weapon against a white person, even if the aggression is justified, shall be shot if they are slave, or have their right hand cut off by the executioner if they are free, unquote. Enslaved people in Ponce refused to be afraid of these new laws, and they rebelled in July of 1848. Three were killed by firing squad, and enslaved peoples from neighboring haciendas were forced to watch the executions. Another sinister aspect of the codes was the increased payout to any enslaved person who worked with authorities to capture enslaved peoples who planned to rise up against their masters. As workers were either forced to work in the sugar fields or streamed into the cities, a devastating epidemic would choke the island. During this mass migration in the 1850s, the main downside was the lack of infrastructure in the city itself. The water supply and aqueduct system could not handle this massive population increase. By 1855, thousands were dying of cholera. 
Cholera is caused by ingesting unsanitary water or food. It can spread very rapidly, especially in unsanitary urban conditions. Nearly 40% of those who died were enslaved peoples who had no access to basic health care. In the end, over 30,000 people died as a result of this disease, which spread so far because of the racist and inept government's mismanagement. In Mayaguez, one of the few who tried to help the incredibly poor and enslaved populations was Ramon Emeterio Batances. Born of Norman and African parents, Batances was found throughout the barrios of Puerto Rico, providing medical care for all, free of charge. He was an abolitionist who believed slavery was one of the great sins which man had committed. As a boy, he was educated in France and had to go through the embarrassing ordeal of seeing his father becoming an, quote, official white, unquote. This was a process which was forced onto black people and multi-ethnic people in order to allow certain marriages to be recognized or to validate certain business deals. It took years, lots of money, and a public denouncing of your entire family's history in order to complete the process. In spite of his official whiteness, Batansis ran an escaped slave society. Here, he attempted to secure passage for maroons and runaways. Every Sunday, he could be found at the local church, attempting to buy the freedom of any newborn enslaved baby. He did the right thing in spite of the consequences, and he was hated for it. By 1859, he was exiled from the island in what would prove to be the first of many exiles. He escaped the authorities, but his life was upended after the death of his fiancée, Maria Lita del Carmen. He was at a loss. For a time, he gave up his practice, preferring instead to clean the gravestone of his beloved for hours at a time. His short story, The Borican Virgin, is inspired by his unending love for her. He would eventually marry but it was, by all accounts, a loveless marriage, made for convenience's sake. Batances would eventually find himself back in medicine, working as one of the few surgeons on the Puerto Rican island. His life would not remain this way, though. He would be exiled again from Puerto Rico and find his way to the Dominican Republic, as their people fought in the War of Restoration against Spain. Here he only grew more radical, as he became determined to expel the Spanish from Puerto Rico. His machinations would not come to fruition for many years, but his determination to free his island and his island's enslaved peoples would keep him going. One of Batances' main inspirations was the American John Brown. His violent abolitionism and his raid on Harper's Ferry, Virginia, showed how divided people had become because of the practice of enslavement. John Brown's death would lead directly to the American Civil War. This conflict allowed Puerto Rico to swoop in on the cotton trade, as America had stopped producing. The island capitalized on this cash crop, as hundreds of thousands died a few hundred miles to their north. Following the Civil War's conclusion, the world economy took a nosedive, as goods from the previously blockaded South re-entered the world market. In 1865, Liberal Spanish monarchists had gained control of the country. They formed a junta and asked Puerto Rico and Cuba to send delegations, which would present reforms they felt were necessary. Three liberals and three conservatives were chosen from the island, 
even after the conservatives in power passed the last second poll tax, which was unpayable for most Creoles. These representatives demanded the abolition of slavery, proportional representation in the courts, the extension of constitutional guarantees to islanders, and the fulfillment of the promised special laws. Additionally, they wanted economic freedom from absurdly high taxes and arbitrary Spanish economic laws. In April of 1867, the courts dispersed without considering a single reform proposed by Puerto Rico. This was the straw that had broken the camel's back for Batances. He could no longer sit idly by as Spain continued to harvest Puerto Rican resources and capital for its own gain. If Puerto Rico would not be allowed the same rights which Spaniards enjoyed, then Spaniards should have to do without Puerto Rico's wealth. An increasing problem for the Puerto Rican population was so-called voluntary contributions. These bribes were not voluntary and they were hardly contributions. Officials would simply take the money out of the treasury. In the most egregious example, 103,000 pesos were simply lifted from San Juan's vaults. The money had originally been set aside to build an aqueduct system. On top of this reckless governance, Spain demanded money from the colony to pay for its many, many wars. I've already mentioned the Restoration War in the Dominican Republic, but there were also wars and rebellions which required massive military expenditure in Morocco and the Philippines. As if this wasn't enough to convince someone of the need for separation, Spain demanded that Puerto Rico begin covering the public debt of the Spanish Peninsula. These were the conditions on the island when Batances schemed up a revolution, which he hoped would culminate in Puerto Rican independence. First, he needed his rallying document, which he called the Ten Commandments of Free Men. His points are as follows, quote, one, the abolition of slavery, two, the right to vote on all impositions, three, freedom of religion, four, freedom of speech, five, freedom of the press, six, freedom of trade, seven, the right to assemble, eight, the right to bear arms, nine, inviolability of the citizen, and 10, the right to choose our own authorities, unquote. He goes on to say, quote, if Spain feels capable of granting us and gives us those rights and liberties, they may then send us a general captain, a governor, made of straw, that we will burn in effigy come carnival time, as to remember all the Judases that they have sold us until now. That way, we will be Spanish, and not otherwise. If not, Puerto Ricans, have patience, for I swear that you will be free." Unquote. When a massive hurricane touched down on the island and wreaked devastation, Spanish authorities started to demand taxes early. This was the moment to strike. Liberal idealists, black Puerto Ricans, and Creoles led the various rebellions across the island. Their main gripe was economical, as many were forced into bankruptcy thanks to the extravagant payments demanded by local merchants on loans. Another reason was the racism displayed by the island's governors. One rebel was a black man named Pascasio Lemort. 
He had been fired from his position as a local scribe. The reason given by his employer was that, quote, his mere presence was distasteful to my visitors, unquote. Another military officer named Bernabe Paul was removed from his post because of the color of his skin. It seemed all of Puerto Rico's oppressed populations were present when the revolt was scheduled for September 29, 1868. It would end up being known to history as the Grito de la Res. This rebellion miraculously coincided with two separate rebellions across Spain's holdings. As the various rebel cells planned their offensive, disaster struck the nascent uprising. A single soldier informed on the whole movement, and one of its principal leaders was arrested and had his home raided by police. The decision was made to push the rebellion ahead a whole week and to move its location to Lares, a small town in the central mountains. The leader of the rebellion in Puerto Rico was a liberal hacendado named Manuel Rosas. As the 600 rebels converged on his estate, he roused them with a fiery speech in which he decried the Spanish government and called for the abolition of taxes as well as the end of the libreta system. In response, many hundreds burned their workbooks. Cries of long live free Puerto Rico, liberty or death, resounded in the cold night air. The 600 left for Laris. Upon arriving in the town, they arrested the mayor, and a dozen Spaniard houses were ransacked. The 600 proceeded to occupy Lores, tearing down portraits of the queen and declaring a free Puerto Rican republic. Bernabe Pol, once barred from participating in the Spanish government, was named the republic's first secretary of state. In Lores, the crucial decision was made to hear midnight mass instead of marching on the next town, Pepino. As daylight broke, the 600 soon realized their advantage was lost, but they still attempted to carry the town regardless. The mayor of Pepino was ready. He rapidly brought in reinforcements from nearby Aguadilla. These loyalists held the town against repeated assaults by the rebels, who were continually frustrated by the defenders. Many of these rebels were workmen and poor farmers, armed with only machetes and spears against rifle companies. The 600 retreated to the hills after suffering many casualties. They still believed they could hold out there until Batansis arrived. Little did they know, he had been on the lam for weeks. Traveling to Danish St. Thomas, he had been tailed by officials at every turn. He evaded authorities, but the ship and supplies meant for Puerto Rico were impounded. The rebellion was over before it had begun. By December of 1868, 545 of the 600 had been captured. Among those arrested was Mariana Bracetti, who sewed the original Puerto Rican flag. Another woman would be arrested for attempting to rouse a separate rebellion in Ponce. While in prison, seven men were charged with death. Their sentences were never carried out. Instead, they were sent off to Spain. Of the rest, 80 died in prison of a yellow fever outbreak. The other prisoners were all pardoned by the Spanish government. Following the Glorious Revolution, during this revolution, the moderate Isabella had abdicated in favor of the radical Democrats and progressives. However, this republic would be short-lived, as the conservatives would achieve victory and maintain their grip on Spain until the 20th century. In Cuba, a 10-year-long war began with the Grito de Yara, America would stick their noses into this issue in 1898, leading them to eventually annex Puerto Rico. 
1873, five years after the revolution, Puerto Rico and Cuba would finally abolish slavery. By 1897, Puerto Rico was given the right to home rule. This right was rapidly taken away following the United States' annexation of the island. In the nearly 400 years since Taino decimation, Puerto Rico had changed exponentially. By 1870, the island could boast a population of 600,000. Many great powers had watched their might crash against Puerto Rican palisades before returning home, defeated. With the rise of a new liberal regime in Spain, change was promised. In a lot of ways, change would come. From the island's first inhabitants, to the first battery placements at El Moro, all the way to the Grito de Lares, the Puerto Rican people have had anything but a stagnant history. Their struggles have culminated in a truly dynamic culture, which still has many issues to confront to this day. Racism, machismo, and homophobia are still very much a part of Puerto Rican society. These ideas are based on ignorance, and unfortunately, Ignorance is one of the main tools utilized by authoritarians to control entire populations. There's a reason why Spain refused to build a university on the island. There's a reason why, quote-unquote, mixing races was seen as impure. And there's a reason why Puerto Rico was still used parasitically by the United States as a tax shelter for billionaires and a naval base to this day. This series was meant to educate not just you, the listener, but also myself. I've always been interested in where I come from, as I'm sure many people are. Throughout my research, I learned to fall in love with an island I've never set foot on. I also learned just how many barriers were put in the way of the majority of Puerto Ricans trying to make a decent and fair living. Authoritarianism was the disease spread by a broken state. One needs only look at the absurd conservative values being supported by government officials as well as the great deal of the American population today, to see just how low authoritarians could go. African studies being banned. LGBTQIA plus children forced to conceal their identity. And women made to live as incubators in the pursuit of population growth to fuel the workforce. The arguments have not changed. They have just become more insidious in the way in which they're presented to the population through the media. As Puerto Ricans saw their independence drifting away through a window stained with the blood of those who died for independence, they were left empty-handed. Finding themselves between a rock and a hard place once again, the best they could do was just survive. This they did, and not only that, they thrived. Now over 9 million people claim Puerto Rican descent throughout the world. As the island changed and millions of Puerto Ricans moved away, one thing that remained was the fierce pride the inhabitants had for their island. Confronted by the 20th century, Puerto Rico would find itself a pawn in America's grand scheme. But the people's adaptability and resistance continued to prove strong in the face of foreign control. I'm your host, Joseph Pascone. And I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's downloaded the show. It's been so much more successful than I could have ever imagined. That being said, Melissa and I need a break. These series take a lot out of us. And we want to be able to deliver the same quality of content consistently. 
It won't be a long break, so don't worry. We will be returning on March 21st with a story much more modern as we cover the Attica State Penitentiary police riots. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you soon. If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support and thank you for listening.